my personal view is that we need to be doing this everywhere because part of all of the pushes to net zero include electrifying a lot of things that are currently powered by fossil fuels. Well, if you've got data centers proliferating everywhere and they're doing so in a low efficiency manner, they're sucking down way more power than they need to. And that leaves less power to run vehicles and and all the other things that we might want to plug into the grid. Welcome to Light Data Action, the podcast that's on a mission to help you discover new technology trends and tools and better understand how they affect the world around us. Light Data Action is sponsored and produced by Lumen Technologies, the platform for amazing things. I'm your host, Terry Barbonis, and in each episode, I'll speak with industry executives and thought leaders to discuss how these technologies change the way we do business, how they influence the fourth industrial revolution, and how you can stay ahead of the innovation. If you're ready, let's join the conversation. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about, not a little bit, we're going to talk a lot about sustainability as sort of a strategic business outcome. Now, terms such as ESG, ethics, sustainability, and governance, triple bottom line, three Ps, uh, and so forth, have been trending within boardrooms and amongst investors over the last few years and have become sought after uh, strategic business outcomes, or at least goals for uh, strategic business outcomes. In one form or the other, the goal is for companies to work on improving the environmental, social, and governance aspects of their business. Uh, right alongside its financial considerations, things like profit, expenses, growth, accounting, and so forth. Now, from an investment perspective, it's now the confluence of these attributes considered in parallel to their financial, uh, to the financial attributes that are driving investment decisions. With this model, doing well is intertwined with doing good. My guest today operates a business that provides other organizations a foundation for positively impacting their own ESG goals and is doing so in a way that is, well, very cool in many ways. Uh, Trenton Thornock is the founder and managing member of Wyoming Hyperscale White Box, which has developed one of the world's most innovative data center ecosystems set on a family plot of land owned by him and six other siblings that also happens to include a carbon neutral indoor farming enterprise. Trenton, welcome. Thank you, Terry. I'm I'm so excited to have you here today. Uh, just from that opening alone, when I was writing it, was wow. Um, can you give the audience take a few more minutes and talk a little more about your role within the organization and the overall organization as well? Sure. So I'm the founder and managing member of Wyoming Hyperscale. I started the company at the end of July of 2020 during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, basically there were three founders. It was uh, our family's land holding company, um, myself and my brother who operates uh, the ranching business on this property and several others at the moment. Um, So that's a little bit about us. We've been in this neighborhood since 1869. In fact, my brother lives on a piece of the original homestead, uh, the original family homestead. And uh, although the property in the area is kind of 
traded hands around family members over the generations. Uh, we still control a little piece of it there. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Um, I've read that Wyoming Hyperscale was your uh, quote unquote purpose built mission. Was the mission always to create a sustainable data center ecosystem, and and has it has that mission evolved since you started? So, the initial mission was just to build a data center, and so the architecture of the data center started to evolve over time. The first thing that we ne needed to take into consideration was the fact that basically the entire western part of the U.S. Uh, and maybe more of the U.S. is in a mega drought. Right. And so although uh, the family land holding company controls quite a bit of uh, water rights on the Bear River drainage, uh, which it uses for agriculture, we didn't want to consume that water in the data center cooling process. So uh, my first uh, diversion or rabbit hole in the data center industry was to go out and try to figure out how to cool a data center without consuming water. And then later on, once we realized that uh, a lot of the energy that's currently being pumped out into the atmosphere uh, through heat rejection in conventional data centers was able to be efficiently captured and transported, that's when the idea of uh, pairing the data center to heat reuse cases such as indoor farming came about. Yeah, which which is, like I said earlier, it's, it's a, a very neat use case to say the least. But let me go back to what I mentioned in my opening, this idea of the triple bottom line, the three Ps, profit, planet, and people, if you will, and try to kind of map that to some of the things that you and the organization have done along those lines. Um, let's start with the one that most people can sort of easily identify with, profit. How are you, you know, at a high level, how are you able to build a data center in Wyoming at such a low cost compared to doing it, for example, somewhere else? Well, there are several reasons. Uh, part of it has to do with the history of the property. Uh, my dad acquired this property from a bankruptcy auction in about 1990 from uh, the Federal Land Bank, which is neither federal nor a land bank. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, it was a distressed purchase it came with about seven square miles of uh, private fee simple property. Uh, we also have leases on uh, federal and state land in the area. And uh, we have other private uh, landowner partners who are part of the ranching operation. So we have in the first place a very low cost basis in the, in the land itself. Um, the next thing, which is kind of an accident of geography and involves lumen, is the fact that we're at one of the highest points on the Union Pacific Railway that runs across the United States. So when Phil Anschutz at Quest and uh, L3 and all these other companies and individuals were first plowing in fiber, they elected to work with the Union Pacific Railway because they had the opportunity to only have to deal with one landowner going from uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Um, so it's, that's a very unique situation um, with one exception. And that exception is uh, when the railway gets to Aspen Mountain, Wyoming, it has to go through two mile long 
rail tunnels. Because those rail tunnels are so long, they're constructed just big enough to fit the train and the double stack containers with not a whole lot of extra room. And so all of the fiber operators had to stop at the mouth of the tunnel. Uh, most of them cut, spliced, found a different uh, right-of-way up over the mountain, and then rejoined the Union Pacific all the way to the Pacific coast on the other side of the mountain. And practically what that means for us is we're host to several uh, re what are called regeneration huts uh, for fiber optic signals traveling across the United States. Uh, there are several splice points which uh, give us access to dark fiber, which is essentially unused capacity on the network. And so a lot of the capital expense of setting up a new node on the network had already been invested at the site by several of the network operators. We also didn't have to convince them to lose capacity on their long-haul fiber because we weren't asking them to cut into the backbone. It had already been cut. And right. conversely, we're taking dark fiber, which is unused uh, fiber optic communications capacity, and we're lighting that up. So we're taking something that was unused and using it. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you ended up in sort of the cream puff of a location. Was, uh, did you, did, were you aware of all those dynamics going into this, or did you go into it and then said, ooh, this is a better idea than we initially imagined, that you had that kind of connectivity and setup that had already, the investments that had already been made that you can leverage? So I didn't know. Um, I can't say that I was completely ignorant, though, because uh, a couple of years ago, it was back in 2017, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who was the general counsel at a company where I used to be the CFO. And I was uh, explaining to him that I was thinking about doing a data center development uh, up in Wyoming. It was actually on, on a different piece of property. And I knew that fiber had been plowed in up there. And there was about to be a 58 megawatt solar array installed. And so he said, hey, if you're going to do anything with data centers, uh, one of my best friends is a guy named Dave Ferdman. He's the co-founder of a little company called Cyrus One Data Centers. And right. you ought to go talk to him. <laughs> so right. I grabbed one of my business partners. We drove out to Austin and had lunch with Dave Ferdman and and a couple of things that, that he told me really stuck. And the first one is, he said, look, you're going to need a lot of power. And it's not the amount of power that most people think of when they plan to plug in a, an industrial facility. He said, you're going to need multiple megawatts. You're going to need tens of megawatts of power. And I thought, okay, well, we got this solar farm coming in, so you know, maybe that works. And then he said, the other thing that you must have is what's called long haul fiber. So there, there are two different kinds of fiber optic installations. There's the kind that goes into your business or into your home, maybe, uh, that goes through the neighborhood. And then there's the fiber optic backbone that's high capacity uh, fiber that goes all across the United States. He said that the latter one is what you need. Otherwise, you're just going to have a cold storage facility for data because you can't get it in and out. Um, and what I realized is that uh, the first location that I looked at only had Metro Fiber, even though it was freshly plowed, it didn't have the capacity 
that we needed to do a data center. So I basically just shoved the whole idea on the back burner. Uh, so from 2017 to 2020, nothing happened. Right. And then in 2020, uh, my brother and I realized that we may be sitting on something that was highly valuable, had all of the attributes that uh, Dave told me were important for a high value data center. And in the meantime, between the time this property was acquired by our father and the time that we decided to develop it, uh, there had been four large scale wind farm developments, two on the east side of the property and two more on the northwest side of the property. And together, those produce more than or can produce more than 400 megawatts of electricity. So suddenly we had a situation where we had all the power that we needed and more. And we also had all of the fiber connectivity that was required. You're sixth generation ranchers. Your father um, acquired this property. I I assume making the best use, the proper use of that land, aside from ranching, was part of what drove this idea of stewardship. And then everything you built on top of it from a sustainable perspective is just gravy. So I think it was my great-great-grandmother that uh, used to grow asparagus outside her home there on the family homestead, which is actually on the Utah side of the border. But uh, my brother is the current steward of all of that land and the agricultural operation. And he's the one that provides all the sound bites, taking care of the planet, because he, he's been very involved in that. Uh, he used to work for the USDA's uh, extension office and uh, work with other ranchers in the area to restore habitats and uh, has done some great work himself around the Bear River restoring habitat. So that's one of the areas where he's active. And of course, the idea is that it then gets passed down to his children as well and their children after them. So in planning this project, that was one of the things that I guess we were we were ESG before ESG was a thing. Right, exactly. It's like back in the 70s, they used to say I was country before when, when country wasn't cool. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we, we would qualify for both of those statements. Um, and so as we set about designing the facility, we wanted to make sure that uh, not only did we reduce the carbon footprint to the extent possible, that but that we would also build something that would fit into the landscape. So if you go to our website now and look at the renderings, even the color scheme is purposely set to blend the facility into the surrounding um, ecosystem so that it doesn't stick out. It's not a city set on a hill. It's just kind of set to blend into the side of the mountain. So let's, let's round this out. Let's, let's talk about people. Now, uh, when you and I chatted last, you talked about having a, I think, a hundred-year-old standard oil diagram on your office wall and that adding jobs to the Wyoming area is something that you're you're proud of. Can you describe some of the job creation initiatives and skill sets that you see being required for, you know, for this type of project, for this endeavor? Yes. So uh, I do have that map on my wall. There is oil production on the north side of Interstate 80 in Wyoming, uh, but there's not a whole lot on the south side outside of a a ranch. Uh, It shows the road that we're using, uh, which has been there now for more than 120 years. 
we're basically repurposing a lot of the infrastructure and the roads that were cut into the area for this project. And that allows us to further avoid disturbing any of the surrounding areas. So uh, between the selection of liquid cooling, which shrank the size of the data halls by about 85%, and the reuse of that oil, old uh, oil field infrastructure, we're able to minimize our impact on the surrounding property. I know part of the success of this project also depended on working with multiple stakeholders, local businesses, uh, state, federal government, I assume, and so forth. What was that collaboration like, that sort of effort to bring everybody into the the fold in support of this this mission? Just by virtue of being in the neighborhood for so long, a lot of these people already know us. And so uh, when we stand up and ask for something, they already kind of know who they're dealing with. We're known quantities. But on the other hand, dealing with, of course, the federal government and the state government, there's a lot more turnover there. Those people are not necessarily uh, local to us, but you know, we, we have to deal with the Bureau of Land Management. We've had interactions with the Department of Energy, with the USDA, and generally speaking, Wyoming itself is fairly regulation light. So, you know, early on, we had to uh, approach the Industrial Siding Commission and the Department of Environmental Quality to make sure that we were staying within the bounds of what would allow us to develop uh, without creating a lot of red tape. And they were very helpful in working with us and wishing us good luck. So I have to say, out of all the development projects that I've had, this one has been unique in that most of the people that we needed to interact with locally, we already knew. Yeah. And, and I was going to, I was going to add, I'm assuming that your family being a known entity and coming to the various stakeholders and saying, this is kind of our audacious plan for what we want to do was probably met with, um, it, it was a lot easier to get consensus as opposed to an outsider data center developer coming in, promising job and promising other things and being looked at as an external entity where, you know, a lot of these efforts, you put a lot of money into it, a lot of resources, put their time and effort into it, but it never goes anyplace. I'm assuming it was it was easier for you and you know the rest of your uh, family in terms of being a known entity, being local, and basically trying to improve an area that um, has both economic impact and you know become sort of the center of innovation. When Wyoming not really known as the center of innovation with other projects, right? Right. Uh, Wyoming has one of the lowest uh, export economies of any state in the United States. And so uh, wow. we do want to bring economic activity into the area. Uh, in the case of the type of data center that we've specified, it's very clean. It's not consuming a lot of resources from around uh, the community. So right. what we're trying to do is build something that produces more for the people who are there than it than it takes away. And uh, when, the, when a developer comes in with that sort of mentality, it's a lot more palatable for the local population to get on board. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, and it's, it's funny going through these sort of these, these three Ps, if you will, um, 
that in, in this particular case, the people portion, whether it's job creation or getting collaborative support, is the foundation to getting to the plan and ultimately profit. Um, is, is that why this project is so personal to you? Because it really, in just hearing you describe it firsthand, I, I could see it being more than just a business endeavor, being a personal endeavor for not just the land, but just kind of bringing everybody together to do something that ultimately becomes good for not just your organization, but the surrounding area and you know the United States, the world. Yes, it's a way for me to give back first to the people who helped raise me, right? So, right, right. It, as they say, it takes a village. In our in our case, uh, a lot of the the villagers were my relatives. So, it's a way for me to bring economic prosperity uh, back to the place where I grew up, and that's very important to me. And it, it's it's also important because I've still got family who live there. And a lot of the right. pictures that we post on the Indoor Farms website of the rotten fruit, that's we're, we're going to protect the innocent and not say where it was found. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it is local. And so there there is a real need that we're trying to address. It's not something that we're contriving. It's something that we feel is, is necessary in order to help the local population get access to fresher produce, for example. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing, Trent. And I, I, I love the background story of, you know, the family and sort of how this whole thing kicked off. But I also know that a lot of our listeners and yours truly being a geek wants to get into the uh, the inner workings of the technology for a bit. So, um, you know, we often hear, you know, green technologies in general that have promise. Sometimes they're difficult to implement. Can Can you explain again at a high level, and then we can go into some more detail. Can you explain how using proven technologies to achieve sustainability, things like the elimination of server fans, and then really cool things like using the Earth's natural cooling system as a benefit to your facilities. Can you go into a little more detail on that? Because I think myself and the audience, I think we'll find that fascinating. Yeah, so we kind of have to approach it from two directions. One direction is from the energy supply side of the operation. So we're plugged directly into the switch gear where all of that wind generation comes on the grid. So instead of doing power purchase agreements or signing paper swaps or doing some other sort of greenwashing, we actually are tapping the switch gear uh, where all that renewable energy comes on the grid. Early on, I got some pushback from hedge fund managers in New York. They said, okay, well, that's really great. But before I did a ESG, I did coal mining. And I happen <laughs> to know that uh, the baseload power comes out of the Naughton plant in Kemmer, Wyoming, and part of that is coal. And that's true. But uh, back in November, we got another bit of good news uh, in hearing that Bill Gates and TerraPower are going to replace that coal-fired generation with 345 megawatts of advanced nuclear. So it's in the process of being decarbonized. And as part of that project, which, uh, the, you know, their $2 billion is being matched by another $2 billion from the Department of Energy, which is uh, our tax dollars at work, uh, they're building a 500 megawatt energy storage facility. So they'll not only be able to theoretically store power from the nuclear plant, but they'll also be able to 
uh, take peak production from the solar farm, for example, or for, from the wind farm, turn that into heat energy and then put it back out on the grid when it's needed. So it kind of acts like a giant battery. Right. And then, you know, working back from the, the downstream side in the farms, my sister-in-law had toyed with uh, greenhouse farming a couple of years ago, but there, there are issues with that in this area. One, it's cold. Two, it's uh, high elevation. And three, the heating power cost to try to operate that in the winter is prohibitive. So once we got the liquid cooling side of the architecture squared away, we realized that we had a very valuable heat resource that can be used in a number of different applications. So we're talking about direct carbon capture, wood drying, uh, in our case, farming. But there, almost any industrial process that uses heat can benefit from some sort of preheating. So right. even if the heat that we generate isn't hot enough to run the process, it can lower the input cost of the energy for that process. Uh, the other thing that it does is it displaces uh, produce that's currently coming in from California. And that's part of the reason why it's moldy is by the time it gets to Wyoming, it's several days old. And so for each load of produce, that hits the uh, Whole Foods in Park City, Utah, we're going to be displacing about 70 gallons of diesel. Right. And that's per load per direction. So you actually consume 170 gallons of diesel because you got to haul the pro produce in and then you got to drive the truck back out to get another load, right? Uh, but that's not the best part. The best part is in changing the architecture in the data center. So at 30 megawatts, based on the regulated power rate that we have, uh, we're going to be saving our tenants about $25 million a year. Wow. And that's forever. Yeah. Um, once we get up to full scale at 120 megawatts, that's $100 million a year in power savings. Wow. And that's per year for as long as the facility operates. So right. there is a, a massive amount of power savings in my personal view is that we need to be doing this everywhere because part of all of the pushes to net zero include electrifying a lot of things that are currently powered by fossil fuels. Well, if you've got data centers proliferating everywhere and they're doing so in a low efficiency manner, they're sucking down way more power than they need to. And that leaves less power to you know, run vehicles and and all the other things that we might want to plug into the so, grid. In addition to generating savings, we're also generating capacity on the grid or creating capacity on the grid that would otherwise be used up. There's obviously some unique qualities that you know you had within this location. You talked about you know the location near the the base load power for the grid. You talked about the networking and so forth. Are there enough attributes that would allow you to replicate? what you're doing in Wyoming and other areas using the same technology? Or is there such uniqueness to just the location and the benefit you get that it would be difficult? In other words, can you franchise it, pick another location that, that meets some of the same qualities in terms of being at the nexus of you know power and networking and so forth and replicate what you're doing in, in Wyoming right now? So that's what's becoming interesting. And one of the developments that we're seeing in the marketplace is the capability of certain firms to do 
off-grid uh, renewable generation sites. Right. And so the power part of it is basically being resolved by uh, the generation industry. And that basically leaves us looking for sites where we have a, a lot of good fiber connectivity. And of course, we have friends like Lumen who can help us find those places. Sure. And uh, really, all of the other parts of the architecture are easily transferable uh, to other locations. So the next locations will likely not be in Wyoming. They may not even be in the United States, but sure. the, the general architecture can be transplanted to other locations. And uh, because we can do both cooling and heating with what the industry considers waste heat, you know, we, we can put farms anywhere from Saudi Arabia to Norway. Right. So yeah. we can cover a wide variety of climates. And uh, because of the, the cooling system is not dependent on air. You know, if you want to geek out a little bit, imagine walking into a data center. If you've been in a data center, they're extremely loud because, right. first of all, you got server fans everywhere. There's a lot of vibration, a lot of noise. And then all of the air handling equipment also causes a lot of noise uh, to the extent that people have to wear ear protection. So imagine walking into our data hall, which is full of a bunch of uh, liquid cooled tanks. There's no air movement or minimal air movement, just ambient air. It's quiet. Uh, yeah. one, of, one of the uh, things we mused about is how loud can we play the music for the workers before it starts to vibrate the, the uh, IT equipment? <laughs> so, That's funny. That's funny. Uh, it, it has a great benefit in that uh, most of the damage that's caused to circuit boards and IT equipment comes from the vibrations, uh, which originates in those server fans and in the air movement. So once we take all of that away, the gear actually lasts longer. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, you know, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, power utilization and I know, cause I've heard you speak before on one of your favorite topics, because I know you get a lot of emails and so forth afterwards, which is uh, our friend, the uh, PUE, the power utilization efficiency. So power just for, for the audience. So PUE or power utilization efficiency measures the ratio of the power used by IT equipment in a data center to the total power available to the entire data center. So the calculation yields a number greater than one. The larger that number over one, the less efficient your utilization within the data center. Now, according to the Uptime Institute, in 2020, the PUE for large data centers worldwide averaged about 1.59, and it's been pretty flat since 2013. Now, I've heard you say that the plan for Wyoming Hyperscale is to achieve a total power usage uh, effectiveness less than one, which is remarkable. How how do you plan to hit a number lower than one when everybody else seems to be, they're getting better, but it's typically one something. Nobody's talking about a negative number, if you will. So I think, first of all, we have to address the fact that power usage effectiveness is a contrived calculation, sure. not a law of physics. It was developed for a certain purpose, and we think that that purpose has uh, outlived its useful life. So essentially what happens to you when you're a tenant in a data center, and let's say your PUE is 1.59, uh, 
will meter all of the power that's going into the server at the you know the socket level. Of course, 15% of that's getting wasted by the server fan. But let's assume that 100% of it goes into the IT hardware itself and causes computations to happen. When you get your bill at the end of the month, we're going to take the power that you consume and multiply that by 1.59. So we're going to increase it by 59% to cover all the other uh, transmission losses. So when you step down the voltage, you lose uh, some power. When you run the HVAC systems, that consumes power. So in order to get one unit of uh, compute, you're actually getting charged uh, 1.59 units of compute, right? Right, right. So in our situation, because we don't have server fans, you got a 15% roughly increase in efficiency right off the bat. And then because the cooling system is so much more efficient, our total PUE for the facility, the facility level PUE should be somewhere in the 1.08 range. So instead of getting a a 59% upcharge, you get an 8% upcharge, which saves you a lot of money, like 50%, right? Right, right. Doing the quick math. And then on the flip side, because we're consuming valuable heat assets in the indoor farms or in a direct carbon capture process or some other industrial process, that industrial process should be able to pay the data center for the usage of that resource. So effectively what we're doing is monetizing waste and allowing the data center tenants to benefit from that. And because a lot of the activity that we'll be doing with the quote unquote waste heat is productive and has a a positive uh, carbon impact, they should also be able to take advantage of uh, some of the carbon credits that are created by doing things such as growing produce, for example. Having been in the space that includes data centers for, for years, you end up having sort of these lighthouse facilities that recently I've been talking about driving down to you know, 1.2, but to be able to drive it even further is is a heck of an accomplishment with everything else. You look at, you know, the end, the end of air cooling, I think is what your website says. The, The construction of the physical building, going back to sort of being able to build them at low cost, I assume is very different because you're not really hanging anything overhead. I assume you still have your, your pipes to move heat and so forth, uh, under the floor, but it's a much different type of building than most people are used to when they walk into a traditional data center, I assume. Right. So there are two things going on with the building construction. Number one, because we don't have to hang a lot of things overhead, we can use a simpler uh, building construction and building design. So last week at the 7 by 24 exchange in Orlando, we showed people a cutaway of the data hall, which clearly shows that it's a metal clear span building. So there's a lot of carbon reduction in moving from, say, uh, tilt-up concrete construction to clear span metal. The metal is also recyclable. So that helps. And also in changing the architecture from air to liquid, uh, we shrink the size of the data halls by about 85%. So our 10 megawatt data hall uh, takes up about 15,500 square feet. 
Um, if you were to go to an air-cooled data center, which is about 10 times less dense, that also means that it takes up 10 times more space for the same amount of compute. Right. So we not only save on the carbon footprint, but there's actual monetary savings because we're eliminating square footage from the construction. Uh, in our case, you know, for the first 30 megawatts, we figure it's somewhere around uh, $11 million worth of square footage that we don't have to build. And that means at 120 megawatts, we're talking about roughly $44 million in construction costs that we're saving. And that's before we get to the operational savings. Right. And how do, how do potential um, customers or even investors kind of react to something that is, you know, certainly comes across as much more innovative and almost too good to be true in terms of being either investing in or as a customer uh, being housed in, in such a data center. Because sometimes I find that people like, you know, they use those seven deadly words. That's the way we've always done it. And sometimes are a little sheepish and diving into something, into something new or something that's so far outside of what they're used to. Do you get any of that pushback or do you get, when you talk to people about it, do they get excited and want to know, how they can sort of play in what, you, what you're developing, at least within you know, completion of your phase one? Well, the first reaction is always one of disbelief. And we do get a lot of pushback, uh, particularly because you know, large hyperscalers have built up supply chains that are in place to supply air-cooled data centers. And so they're against it because it messes with their supply chain. Uh, we think that the power savings and the carbon footprint reduction more than outweighs the preference to keep doing it the way it's always been done. Because frankly, I haven't heard from anybody any solid reason why we shouldn't switch to liquid. And now what right. we're seeing with a lot of the chips that are coming out is they're so hot that they can't be cooled by air. So it's almost like we're, we're at the convergence of a time in history when it's no longer technically feasible to continue cooling with air because the chip architecture is changing. And at the same time, we've got all kinds of pressure to be more efficient and more ESG friendly. I've heard you say that you think the idea of data centers, for example, expanding like around Washington, D.C., for example, it's a possible security risk. How do you look at, so you've got this state-of-the-art data center, right, really innovative. How do you look at security? I mean, you look at cyber attacks today, and you look at malware, and you look at ransomware. Um, I would think that once you, once as a customer, for example, I'm convinced that this is the type of data center I want to be in because I want to play I want to use it as a foundation to my own ESG with what I do with hosting and so forth. Right next to that is how protected am I compared to a traditional data center? How does how do you look at security in general, whether it's location or just the kind of things that you do to prevent or mitigate, you know, things like DDoS attacks and so forth? Right. So let's touch on the physical piece first. You know, I think it's great that there is such a, a large amount of these facilities in Northern Virginia, but when you 
concentrate anything too much, uh, it becomes a national security risk because it's all in one place. And if there's something bad that happens, obviously it's going to affect everybody the same in the, in the same locality. So what we're doing is uh, spreading that resource out across the U.S. physically. And from a cybersecurity perspective, look, I, I'm not a cybersecurity expert and I don't plan to become one. So the natural thing for us to do was to work with our partners. And fortunately, Lumen is a network operator that also has its own internal cybersecurity firm uh, called Black Lotus Labs. So we've been able to leverage that expertise to avoid having to develop it internally. And our opinion is that by working with the network operator who has a view on the entire network all over the world and leveraging their expertise that we create a situation that is more safe than it might otherwise be for our tenants if we tried to do it ourselves. So uh, I think we've, we've covered much of sort of the phase one of the project. Where does this go from here? Where Can you describe sort of without giving him any intellectual property, obviously, can you describe some future ideas that you have in terms of this effort and then continuing to to power that local economy and then eventually spread out from there to not just nationally, but, but globally in terms of this endeavor? Sure. So there are also other use cases, as we mentioned, for the heat. So for phase one, which is 30 megawatts, it just so it turns out that uh, one megawatt of data center can heat about one acre under roof of uh, produce. When we get to phase two, we have another 90 megawatts coming online. So that is what we plan to build in 2024 and bring online in 2025. We've started reaching out to industry partners. And since I'm located in Houston, a lot of those people are local. You know, right. They're looking at large-scale direct carbon capture technologies, uh, things of that nature that would also bring a benefit to the local community, allow them to participate in uh, the decarbonization of the economy and bring revenue into the area and do it in a way that is uh, not just ecologically friendly, but economically friendly as well. You know, one of the things that I take away from this conversation is, you know, everybody's talking about ESG sustainability. I think it can be accelerated through a collaborative approach of companies, partners, stakeholders across industries that have a common agenda of hyper-connecting that profit planet and people. And there's ways that you can enable this as a strategic uh, business outcome. There's multiple ways you can enable it. I think what I get out of what you and and your family and your team have done with Wyoming Hyperscale is taking that idea that you could, the audacious idea of reinventing a data center and turning it into sort of a lighthouse for what's possible when quite honestly, you're driven first to do good as a way to doing well. Right. And I, and I have to confess, this is not all my idea. So one of the things that I saw in a private prior lifetime, uh, building a plant in China was, you know, we're in the zinc business. So right. we had a steel mill and next to the steel mill was a galvanizing facility. So 
we put ourselves next to the galvanizing facility because we used waste from that facility. The next thing down the road was a tire plant. Well, in the United <laughs> States, all of those things are scattered out all over the all over the U.S. So, right, you know, in our U.S. business, you know, we had our our uh, zinc scrap facility that made zinc oxide for tires up in Tennessee. Well, then you got the the tire factory that's up in Michigan, and then you got the galvanizing plant down in Houston, and the steel plant up near Pittsburgh. So you got stuff moving all over all the time. And really, the con- the concept here is to kind of do what the Chinese did on a on a centrally planned basis and try to think holistically about what kinds of businesses fit together in the same sure. place to leverage resources from one business to the other and also to reduce the transportation. You know, obviously, m- much luck. I'd love to have you on a future episode to talk about that that progress. And hopefully, as I said, this acts as a form of a lighthouse, whether it's a data center or some other project for us to collectively be looking at, you know, sustainability as a way to not only become more successful from a purely financial perspective, but become more successful in terms of helping people plan it and so forth. So I appreciate your time. Great conversation, Trent. And thank you again for making the time and joining us today. Yes. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for joining another episode of Light Data Action. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can also follow us on Twitter at Light Data Action. And for more Lumen news, at Lumen Tech Co. As always, we'd love to get your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on the show. And I hope you'll join us next time for another conversation.